So, our reading this morning uh, is continuing in our our, uh, 1 Corinthians series. Uh, We're looking at chapter 7 and starting at verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. An uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. 
Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now Mary is going to come and lead us in our prayers for the wider world. Thanks, Mary. Um, right, so these prayers have been adapted from um, some that I found elsewhere um, because they were written so eloquently that I thought I couldn't improve on them, but I have actually adapted them. So they were written by uh, Mrs. Margaret Appleton. I'll finish each prayer this morning with Lord of Lent and the responses renew our lives. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you called us to renounce evil, and we remember today that at the start of your ministry, You were tried and tempted by the forces of evil, but you resisted and set us all an example to follow by choosing the way of the Father. Teach us how to recognise the approach of evil in all its forms and to be on our guard against it. You face temptation in your life and because of this, may we guard against it and never be ashamed of temptation in our own lives, but save us from the weakness that gives way to it. Grant us, all the strength, grant us all the strength to stand up against all that is evil and keep us firm in times of trial and temptation, knowing that your support and love are always close at hand. Make us, re- <coughs> make us resolute in obeying your will and seeking your kingdom, that we may stay true to you and your proclamation of salvation. Lord of Lent, renew our lives. We offer you our thanks today that we can meet together in this place of church and pray openly to you. And we remember those that are not denied this opportunity, those that are persecuted for their faith, particularly the Rohingya people. We pray for Christians everywhere that they may be strengthened by the power of your love. Help each one of us see our priorities and not be led astray. Too often we compromise and do not live up to our ideals. We fail to put our trust in you, trusting only in our own schemes and plans. During this time of Lent, help us to see more clearly the ways by which we should follow you. And as we come to you, help us to forget ourselves and find true happiness in serving you. As we re-examine our lives through self-discipline and prayer, may we enter your stillness and be sensitive to your call and know your will for us. Lord of Lent, renew our lives. Lord Jesus, we pray for all people who hold positions of authority, that they do not misuse their power to the detriment of those they are supposed to be helping. And particularly, we pray for the situation at Oxfam. We pray for our world leaders and for those who are responsible for making decisions about our future. We pray that they will be given insight and integrity to govern wisely according to your will and being fully aware of the true needs of their people. Lord of Lent, renew our lives. 
And we pray for people everywhere with all their different needs. Into the gentleness of your healing love, we bring before you the lonely, the hungry, those living in poverty and without hope. And we remember all those that are ill or in pain or recovering from surgery. We give thanks, Lord, for the work and dedication of our doctors and nurses. And today we pray for the victims and the families of the survivors of the school shooting in Florida, and much more locally for those involved in the incident yesterday at Barnes Green on the railway crossing. And Lord, we just pray for the emergency services in this country and throughout the world. We have in our hearts some people known only to ourselves who are in need of our prayers, and in a moment of quiet, we remember them. May your healing touch support and strengthen them, and we pray that you will remove from them all hurts, harms, and hinders. Lord of Lent, renew our lives. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you will bless and protect our homes, our families, and our friends. Help us to build bridges of tolerance and understanding between the different generations and cultures. May our homes be havens of peace and rest. Make us grateful for all that we have and help us to be mindful of those who are not as blessed as we are. We pray for the children and young people connected to this church through the various groups and especially for those who are beginning to sense the wonder, mysteries and the difficulties of life. We ask that you hold them in your love. And may they, through the good influence of parents, family and church, grow into a fuller understanding of your love and purpose. Help each one of us respond to their needs. Give us patience and compassion and help us to offer them our time and experience with true sincerity and love. Lord of Lent, renew our lives. Merciful Father, accept these prayers for the sake of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. So before Tim comes and shares with us God's words for this morning, we'll sing just one more song that reminds us again of the huge sacrifice that God made so that we might be called his children. Not only that, but as his church be called his bride. The third verse reads, How great the joy before us to be his perfect bride. Beneath the cross of Jesus, we will gladly give our lives. Let's stand to sing. Before I uh, come to the sermon, can I just uh, thank you for your prayers for Nick Lear, who had major surgery on Monday. I'm very glad to say he came through that successfully. And ask for your prayers for a couple of other uh, Baptist ministers. Uh, Bill McElroy, whose son is married to Norman and Pauline Antill's daughter. He had major heart surgery at the end of this week, uh, had a heart attack, quadruple bypass, want to pray for him. And also for David Hill, who is chaplain at Worthing Hospital. His two sons were killed in the Grand Canyon helicopter crash uh, this week. And so we want to pray for him and his wife as well. So let's pray. Well, we recognise the tragedy of that, that helicopter disaster. And it's hit its home when it's someone known to us. And uh, we pray for David and Sandra, his wife, and place them in your hands and pray for your comfort and peace and strength for them as they face the, the unimaginable and inconceivable. Be with them in ways that they can recognise and welcome. And as we thank you for Nick Lear's successful surgery, we pray for Bill and ask that you would give him your healing too. We place these people who've dedicated their lives to you 
in your hands and pray that they would find healing and peace there. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your prayers. And so the joys of working through 1 Corinthians mean we come today to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What was Paul's view of marriage? And as someone who was single himself, he was happy to recommend staying unmarried as a way of life because, as he puts it, those who marry face many troubles in this life and he would like to spare his readers that, if at all possible. Furthermore, in his view, single people are in a better position to dedicate themselves wholeheartedly to Christ. Whereas if you're married, your primary concern should be how to make your husband and wife a happy person. And that is a time-consuming and difficult job to do. We are called to be nice to our partner and treat them well 365 days a year, not just on Valentine's Day. So Paul is forthright in expressing his opinion. It's okay to be single. Personally, he'd recommend that to anyone. But actually, he recognizes that not everyone has that gift or calling. Putting it bluntly, he says it's better to marry than to burn. And in common with most translations, the NIV, New International Version, correctly interprets that as a reference to burning with unrequited passion rather than a reference to burning in the fires of hell for the sin of sexual immorality. So Paul is happy to recommend being single. For him, it's the preferred way of life. But what is his view of marriage? Well, that all depends on the translation of the opening verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Back in 1979, the translators translated the opening words of this chapter as, now, as for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to marry. When that translation was revised in 2011, the opening verse was amended significantly. Now it reads, now for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's the version that was read and which was on the screen in our service, and it differs from the old translation in the Pew Bibles, if you were following in the book. There is no doubt that the new new translation is far better. Literally what Paul says is it's good for a man not to touch a woman, and that's clearly a euphemism for sexual intercourse. The original translations were perhaps, even though it was 1979, a bit prudish in wanting to avoid any reference to sex. So they opted for talking about marriage rather than sexual relations. And in verse 2, they talked about each man having his own wife and each woman having her own husband rather than the more explicit reference to having sexual relations found in the new translation. So the new version calls a spade a spade and avoids both Paul's gentle euphemisms and the rather prudish approach of the 1979 version. But the most significant change is that the new NIV, quite rightly again, has put quotation marks round the phrase, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And they've done this because at this point in the letter, Paul turns from addressing his own concerns about the church to begin to address concerns and issues that they have raised with him in a letter they have written to him. And when they wrote, they asked questions about a number of issues that Paul works through in the rest of the letter we know as 1 Corinthians. They asked about virgins, and we're not preaching on that. We're skipping that bit of chapter 7 out. They asked about food that's been sacrificed to idols, spiritual gifts, the collection, and when is Apollos coming to visit us again? All these questions and issues Paul takes up and addresses in the rest of his letter to them. But the quotation marks around the second part of chapter 7, verse 1, are there to make it clear that at this point... Paul is quoting what they wrote to him. The sentiment expressed here is not one with which Paul agrees. 
And that's apparent because he goes on to correct their view of sexual intimacy in the verses that follow. He's not saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what they're saying. And he's saying, actually, you've got that wrong. And that's important because the new INV transforms our understanding of what the passage is about and what marriage is about. The old NIV suggests that Paul starts the chapter by saying it's good for a man not to marry. And that opening statement colours our perception of everything he says afterwards. But the new translation makes it clear that it's people in Corinth who are saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, even if he's married to her. And Paul's response to that is, no, 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 that's not right at all. It's entirely appropriate for a husband and wife to sleep together as husband and wife, to use a different euphemism. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. They should enjoy conjugal relations. And in verse 4, we come to another difference between the old and the new NIV. The new is both more accurate and brings out Paul's radical meaning more effectively. The old translation suggests that in marriage, husband and wife share each other's bodies. And that's true. My body belongs to my wife now as much as it does to me. It says the wife's husband doesn't belong to herself alone, but also to her husband in the same way the husband's body doesn't belong to himself alone, but also to his wife. But the new translation goes a lot further. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. In marriage... I relinquish control of my own body and I hand it over to the person I've married. I give my partner authority over my body. My body is no longer my own. It belongs to you now. From a pastoral point of view, I have to say the original wording is much safer. If a wife yields authority over her own body to her husband... That could wrongly be construed as saying that that gives him the right to abuse or use her as he sees fit. And Paul would thoroughly condemn any such idea of abuse. He'd be appalled at such a suggestion. But clearly the radical meaning of his words are worth considering because they give us such a high view of the commitment that marriage entails. When a couple gets married, in effect they say to each other, I am no longer mine. My body is no longer mine. Who I am is yours now. I belong to you. I relinquish authority over my body to you. It's an unconditional giving of yourself to the other person. And it's mutual. has to work both ways. It's emphatically not one person lording it over the other or taking from the other. It is a mutual, unconditional self-giving of ourselves and our bodies to somebody else. Under what possible circumstances would you ever agree to do such a thing? Only in a situation where you completely loved and trusted the other person and were sure that they completely loved you and were totally committed to your safety and your well-being. Well, actually, that's what marriage is supposed to be like. So does Paul see marriage merely as an escape valve for rampant sexual desire? No, no. His view of marriage is right up there in terms of the love and the trust and the commitment to somebody else that enables me to say to them, my body belongs to you now. I'm trusting you with who I am. And your body belongs to me. And I promise to love 
and cherish you for that. The agenda he sets for all of us who are married is to work at building up the kind of relationship with each other where we're prepared to give up control of our own lives and who we are and place ourselves in the hands of somebody else and say, I'm no longer mine, I'm yours. I give myself completely to you, 100%. That's what marriage is about, as far as Paul is concerned. No wonder, he says, you might be better off staying well clear of it. Is it possible to say, actually, to somebody else, as a Christian, I give myself completely to you, 100%. Isn't that actually something we should only be saying to God? Shouldn't that kind of commitment be reserved for Christ alone? Well, one of the reasons why Paul thinks being single is better is because he knows that if you're not married, you are free to give all your devotion and commitment to Christ. Whereas if you're married, your devotion and commitment needs to go to your husband or wife. And as as he puts it, you're kind of pulled in two different directions. Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And as a married man, I want to say, well, where does my wife fit into that then? If God gets everything. If God is the sole and prime object of my devotion, where does my wife fit in? Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that love is like a cake with only so many slices to go round. But if I love God 100%, That doesn't mean to say there's no love left over for my wife. On the contrary, loving God, who is the source of all love, means that my love can go further. There's love for my wife, for my children, even a little bit left over for Brighton Road Baptist Church. But if I am devoted to my wife, which is my calling, to love her, isn't there a danger that I might end up loving her with all my heart, soul, mind and strength? And how does God feel about that? if my wife sometimes is in danger of taking first place in my heart? Am I in danger of taking the devotion that should be given to God and letting someone else have it instead? Well, yes, of course, if I'm honest. That's the kind of love and commitment that we should be having in marriage for each other. And that's why, in my book, getting married in church is important. It's not so much that we need God's divine permission before we can sleep with somebody else. It's that before God... Husband and wife pledge their love for each other and consecrate their relationship with each other to him. And say, this is the person I'm giving all my love and devotion to. And God says, well, God bless you. Yes, do that. Do that with my blessing. And then as one couple, as one flesh, together, give me all your love, all your devotion, all your commitment, and together, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Marriage before God saves us from being a bit idolatrous in all our love for somebody else. We bring our love to God and say, I really love this person. He said, well, bless you. Love that person. And together as a couple, love me. And it looks like people in Corinth hadn't grasped that truth. There were those in church saying, oh, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Because actually, well, if my body belongs to God now, it needs to be kept pure and holy as a temple for the Holy Spirit. And that means no sex. That looks like what people were saying or thinking. Certainly the early church father Origen thought that was the case. Men were thinking this way and refusing to sleep with their wives. And he tells them, you are claiming that you can be chaste and live more purely, but look how your poor wife is being destroyed as a result. Because she's unable to endure your purity... You should sleep with your wife, he says. Not for your sake, 
good for hers. She's losing out. Men should fulfil their marital duties to their wives. More likely, perhaps, is the case that the women were saying to the men, well, my body's a temple of the Holy Spirit now, you've got to stay out, thank you very much. So as one commentator puts it shrewdly, with prostitutes and mistresses abundantly available, Corinthian men unable to have sex with their wives would often look elsewhere. And that's why there was such a problem with sexual immorality in the church. That's why Paul addresses this issue the way he does. What Paul is saying here is that becoming a Christian doesn't suddenly mean you have to stop sleeping with your wife or husband. Far from it, actually. Your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit is dedicated to the person you're married to as much as it is to God. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yes, in Christ you are a new creation. You are a different person. Everything is different because you have changed. That doesn't mean your circumstances or situation automatically needs to change as a result of the commitment that you've made. You're married, he says. Stay married. Carry on sleeping with the person you're married to. Don't stop. Even if your husband or wife is not a Christian, stay put. Continue the relationship. And you're single? That's fine. There's no need to get married. Nothing wrong with it if you feel you need to, but you don't feel you have to change your status just because you're a Christian now. Other examples. You were circumcised when you became a Christian. Leave well alone. Don't mess with that. You weren't circumcised. Don't alter a thing. You were a slave? Well, I don't think that becoming a Christian suddenly means you're going to be set free, but if the opportunity does arise to gain your freedom, make the most of it. But actually, if God wants you to stay where you are as a slave for the time being, though that's far from ideal, don't let it bother you. Because even as a slave, you are the Lord's freed person. And if God closes the door to freedom, then stay where you are and make the most of it. Paul establishes a firm principle here. Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. Stay put. Honour God where you are. Because that's where you have the opportunity to be a witness for him. In that home where you're married to someone who's not a Christian. In that workplace where you're the only Christian there and you feel really vulnerable and it's hard work. It may be that at some point God gives you the opportunity to jump ship and that's fine. But don't suppose that just because you've become a Christian, you need to change your situation. That might be where God wants you to be. Some of you might remember years ago, Cliff Richard, talking about his experience of becoming a Christian. And thinking, because I'm a Christian now, I need to come out of the music industry. Because it's tough there. You don't get many Christian rock and roll musicians but God's calling for him was to be just that, to stay where he was and be a Christian and live out his life for Christ in that context. Sometimes when we find ourselves in places that are difficult or uncomfortable as Christians, God says, stay put. Find ways to honour me and serve me right where you are, because I need you there. There are no boundaries where God does not want to be present. And we represent him in those difficult places. Sometimes the call to stay put can give rise to complicated pastoral situations. What about the girl who's living with her boyfriend when she becomes a Christian? It's a long-term relationship. They have children. No way on earth is he ever going to agree to marry her. She becomes a Christian. What does she do 
in that kind of situation? Does she leave the boyfriend because she's a Christian now? Does she refuse to sleep with him until he marries her? Or does she stay put? You might want to discuss that over your Sunday lunch. (laughs) In one church, we grappled with situations like this and came to the conclusion that just because a Christian is living with a person to whom they are not married, that should not be a bar to baptism or church membership, precisely for those reasons. Because God might be saying to them, it's not ideal, but stay put. That's where I want you to be for the time being. Not everyone was happy with that decision, but I believe it was absolutely the right decision to make. Because we live in a messy, broken world. Some of us are in difficult jobs. Some of us are in difficult homes. Some of us are in difficult schools. It would be great if becoming a Christian just meant that God lifted us out from all that and moved us somewhere safe and comfortable and sorted everything out. Sometimes in his goodness and mercy he does. But sometimes he says, that's where I want you to be for the time being. I'm with you there, right where you are. And I will help you and show you how to live for me in that place. So let's pray. Lord, thank you that there is no part of our lives about which you're not concerned. And forgive us for those times when we get rigid and we put rules in place and we, uh, we misconstrue your heart. Help us to discern what is virtuous and good and right in life's messy situations. Enable us to discern what your spirit is calling us to do, how you want us to live, and to find those around us who will support us in that. Thank you that sometimes, even though you don't change our situation, you change us and make us new people. Lord, establish your kingdom in our hearts and enable us to live effectively for you in our workplace, in our homes, in our relationships. Give us grace where it's really hard. We ask it in